traveled to Los Angeles for a conference, and uh, our flight out of uh, the airport here was at 6.30 on Saturday morning. So we were up at 3 getting ready for that, and when we got to the airport, the airport was completely packed at 5 o'clock in the morning. And uh, we were so shocked, and I started asking uh, around what was going on, and they said, oh, it's all the mission trips that are leaving. There were four international mission trips leaving the airport at the same time, and uh, our Alaska trip from our church was there as well. And let me tell you, the Chick-fil-A at the airport was wrapped up because there were all these mission trips that were leaving. They were trying to get their Chick-fil-A in before they left uh, the country or the area or whatever. And uh, it was actually a, a pretty interesting reminder about how many churches in our area are involved in missions, that the airport at 5.30 on a Saturday morning was filled with people who were leaving to go all around our country and around our world to do missions. And uh, I thought that was a pretty cool thing, to tell you the truth. And uh, as we were watching that, I was just really reflecting on the incredible legacy our, and impact that our area has uh, for missions, and especially that our church has for missions. I do want to take a couple of points of personal privilege. First off, my mom and dad are with me today, and so I want to point them out. They're over here, and uh, they're the ones sort of sliding down in the pew right now. Uh, for some of you in this service in particular, you'll find it interesting. My mom and dad both are from Laurel, Mississippi, and dad grew up with Edwin and Joe Beth Young. They went to elementary school together. And so he's former pastor of this church before Dr. Carswell, and uh, he, uh, they were great friends growing up. And that's the first time I heard about Taylor's was uh, when we would travel and we would come down I-85. A lot of times we would spend the night here and dad would call uh, Edwin. Remember in the days when you would stop and you'd use a pay phone uh, because you didn't have things like cell phones and all that, but thrilled to have my family here with me today. And I do want to thank, even though he's not here, he's preparing to be away, Alan McWhite for the leadership he's been providing. Uh, please give him words of encouragement. He has been such a huge help for us here at the church. And uh, some of you know at North Greenville, we were started by the local churches in the northern end of the county. And uh, I was counting up this morning. I think we have staff members who are preaching at seven different churches this morning. And uh, we have the interims. We have, we're supplying people for the interims at Taylor's, at Brushy Creek, at Forestville. And uh, Ken Hemphill just finished the interim pastor at the largest church in Springfield, Missouri. They actually flew him all the way to Springfield, Missouri every weekend. And so we love serving our churches and serving the Southern Baptist Convention and the South Carolina Baptist Convention. And uh, that makes it an extra honor and privilege to be able to be here today, uh, stepping into Alan's shoes. And just one more little commercial, and that is I'm the president at North Greenville. I can't let a moment pass without giving you just a little brief update. Uh, looks like last year we've had over three 300 students on campus who've made professions of faith. Uh, and we think that's a pretty cool thing. Anybody else think that's a pretty cool thing? 20% of our undergraduate student body this year did summer missions or are doing church work this summer or camp work. 20%. That's one out of every five, which is pretty amazing. Uh, some of you who have been around the area a long time will especially find this incredible. We have a Greer campus now uh, in the old Ryan Steakhouse headquarters. We already have over 400 students at that campus. There was a time not long ago where we had 300 students in Tigerville, and we have over 400 there at Greer. We have a physician assistant program that only has 30 slots a year, and this last year we had 800 applications for 30 slots. 
in that group, if you can believe that. And uh, we had students who came from North Carolina, Chapel Hill, Purdue, Ohio State, uh, and yes, North Greenville was their uh, alma mater as well. And uh, they're here at the Greer campus. And then the last thing I love to tell people because uh, we're such an unusual case in this regard is we continue to be an institution that has no bank issued debt. We're a debt free uh, institution and we're, we work hard. And a lot of the board members we have from this church are ones that have helped us to be able to have that conviction and to do that, which really helps our students. Well, I want to tell you a story about when I was in college. Uh, one of the things that's the best part about your college experience, if you have the opportunity to go to college, is road trips. And that's when uh, you see a good weekend coming up, and you get your friends, and you all pile in together into a car, and you head out. I was at a college in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, James Madison University, and had a group of friends. We decided we were going to go down to Virginia Tech, which is down in Blacksburg. It's a straight shot down I-81 through the Shenandoah Valley. We filled up the car, uh, had a young lady who sat in the uh, passenger seat, and there were three other people in the back seat. And as often will happen on a Friday afternoon when you get in a car with college students, within about 10 minutes, all the rest of the people in the car were asleep. So they're snoring and, and everything. So I'm, I'm heading on down the road, and about two hours in, uh, one the young lady who was in the passenger seat woke up. She kind of was like, oh, I'm so sorry, you know, so I'm, I'm just heading on down the road. And after about 10 minutes, she said, now, um, what are we doing? And I said, what do you mean? And she said, why are we in West Virginia? Now, I don't know if you've ever been from one place in Virginia to another place in Virginia, but the odds are you don't go to West Virginia while you're in Virginia. And what had happened was there at Lexington, I had missed that I-64 had split off and I-81 had split off and I had followed 64 instead of 81. And we were now over an hour into West Virginia. And uh, uh, I then, this is in the days before GPS when you're supposed to pay attention. You know, with GPS, you don't have to pay attention, right? You know, because uh, turn here. All right, I'll turn here. Uh, unless you're a guy and you don't listen to the female voice of the GPS because... You know, that's the way guys are wired and everything. But what happened was that I wasn't paying attention, and it wasn't intentional in any way, shape, or form, but little by little, mile by mile, I had departed from the path I was supposed to be on. And after a while, somebody finally said, now, what are we doing? And I began to realize, oh, I've made a terrible mistake. And in this day and age then, in the 80s, we had to pull out a thing called a map. It was this thing that you folded up and you put in your glove box. It was really awesome. And uh, we began to figure out what was a shortcut to try to get back and everything. And I thought about this because of where we are as a church relative to our pastor search process. And so uh, the context for which I'm, I'm bringing this today is for us as individuals and for us as a church. And it's because I do a lot of supply preaching. I don't do interims because my schedule is such that it's hard for me to do that. But I do a lot of supply preaching where I come to churches that are in the process of seeking out another pastor. And, and we're at an unusual spot as a body, and that is we're about a year into the process now. So uh, we've had uh, the interim since about October, but we're about a year into being without a pastor and going through this search process. Our pastor search committee is now getting into the heart of the matter. And it is the time where they will probably be now talking to someone. I don't know that they are. I'm just saying uh, typically this is the case. And by the way, let me also mention that the healthiest searches I've seen at churches like this are the ones that take at least a year to a year and a half. 
Can, can I just say that as somebody that does this a lot? Because what it does is it allows the church to prepare for what's coming next. And I've also seen time and time and time again that the person who is going to be the next pastor, something was happening six months previously that it was not the right time for that person to leave the church where they were. It might be a family thing, might be a church thing. And so watching all of these things begin to weave together in a sense of God's timing are really important. And so what we need to be doing as a church is preparing ourselves. As church members, we need to be preparing ourselves. We need to be reflecting. We need to be preparing. But we also right now need to begin to pray for the pastor who's going to join us. Right now, there's a pastor who's being prepared by God to come and serve this church. And he may not even know it yet. But that also means that there's probably a family. There may be children. There may be children whose world is about to be turned upside down because they're perfectly happy wherever they are now. And this is a stress on a family. But I also want to remind you that right now there's a church that's about to become pastorless because their pastor is going to be our pastor. And we need to even begin to pray for them right now that this will be an incredible opportunity for them as a church to grow and so forth. And so as, as we're looking today, what I want you to do is to turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And I want to ask this question now. What are we doing? Just as my, my passenger asked, what are we doing? And I think that this passage in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 is a, a good overview of this. We'll be at the beginning of the chapter. And so 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and I'm going to start with a word of prayer real quickly. God, we are grateful for the opportunity to be your body here in Taylor's and to be a part of your body globally. God, thank you for uh, the heritage and the history of this church. Thank you that we are a church that has a missions heart. God, help us to have a heart for our community. And God, help us also to be mindful that as you are preparing our next leader, uh, you are preparing him and his family. And God, we pray that you'll already begin that process of intervening and uh, turning their hearts toward this new uh, place of service. And God, that even now you'll begin to prepare for that church uh, that's going to go through a transition as well, that it will be a time that will lead them uh, to reflect and to ponder and to see how they are doing in preparation for what will come next for them. And so, God, today we pray that we'll be able to focus on your word, on the word of the Lord, as Paul says in this passage, and that we will be able to look at ourselves as a body as well as as individuals and to consider what it means to serve you and to serve you faithfully. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, I'm going to read from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, if you would mind uh, standing uh, out of respect for God's inspired holy word. I'm at the beginning of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and it says this, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified, just as it did also with you, and that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. And may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. Thank you very much. You may be seated. 
So one of the challenges for church life and one of the challenges for us as individuals is that it is so easy for us to be distracted or to be lulled into some kind of distraction. And I think that this passage here, remember, this is Paul writing to a church. And so I think that this passage gives us at least three things. The first thing that he gives us here is what our primary goal is. And so look back at verse one. Our primary goal is that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you. And what he's getting at here is this idea that the word of the Lord is the thing that is overarching over everything else that we do. Now this phrase, the word of the Lord, is incredibly common in the scriptures. In the Old and New Testaments combined, it's used at least 275 times. And every time it's used, it's used to assert essentially the authority of God over the church and over the created world. And so it's almost always a reference back to authority. And this is basically what he's saying is, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly. And what he's saying here is you as a church, I need for you to be praying that those of us that are sent out will be able to spread the word. But he's also assuming here that the word of the Lord has been taking root there in the church, which we'll come to here in verses two and three in just a moment. And so really in this passage, what he's doing is using the phrase, the word of the Lord as a shorthand for the gospel. And so we can summarize this phrase, the word of the Lord, it's almost as if we could go back and read this and say, pray for us that the gospel of Jesus Christ will spread rapidly and be glorified. And so if this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, if this is the word of the Lord, what's a way for us to understand this maybe a little bit more broadly? And I want to take us to two other passages where we do this. The first one is in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. In Matthew 4, 17, Christ is beginning his ministry and and one of the things that we are told is that the constant refrain that Christ gives as he speaks and as he brings a word from the Lord to the people who are listening is this phrase, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, when was the last time you heard the phrase repent? It's not something we talk about in our culture. Repent doesn't sound nice and we want to be nice, but you know what? Sometimes nice is the enemy of the gospel. Because a lot of times we'll say, well, I don't want to offend. But here's what the scriptures say. If you want to be a, a Christian who follows after Christ, then one of the things that we have to understand is that the phrase repent is really important. And so if it is the phrase that Christ brings forward as the word of the Lord, it ought to be something that we bring as well. Now, what do I mean by repent? What I mean is seeing that there are things that are sinful and rejecting those things and walking away from them. Repent means we're having a change of heart. It means we're having a change of mind. It means that we are saying, I will turn away from what I have been doing and I will instead follow after Christ. And so the beauty of repentance is that repentance is what brings relationship between us and God. And so one of the things that I love to tell my students when they ask about witnessing or they ask about how to, how to share the gospel with their friends, one of the things that I tell them is uh, when people are late at night and they're lying in bed and they're reflecting on their day, a lot of times what happens is that there is the voice of God that is letting them know that something's wrong. And a lot of times people don't even know how to articulate that there's something wrong, but they sense that something's wrong. I think this is why we have so much addiction in our culture and why we can't sleep without the television on and things like that, because we want to block out that voice that tells us a lot of times in the still, small, quiet moments of our our lives that something's wrong. And, and it's often that I will have people who will say, 
why is it that I feel this particular way? And a lot of times what I'll say is, well, let me talk to you about what's going on. Tell me about your relationship with God. Let me tell you about whatever. And, and frequently what will end up happening then is that we'll find that there's something that they realize they're troubled by and that they want to turn away from. And this is what Christ is getting at is the big word of God, the big the word of the Lord is that we should be in a situation where we repent, we have repented, and even as Christians we still repent because we struggle with things. The second thing that Christ gets at at the start of his ministry is in Luke chapter 4. And in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, Christ again at the beginning of his ministry, he's speaking in a synagogue, and the passage says this. He's reading from Isaiah, and these are the first words that we have recorded in Luke from, from Christ. It says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And again, this is out of Isaiah. And so what Christ is saying here, first he's saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here he's describing the kingdom of heaven as we are to seek it on earth, and that is through restored relationships between people. And that is the phrase justice. And so repentance and justice are the two prongs that we get here in the gospel. And Christ here is saying that this is what the gospel does. It through repentance restores our relationship with God, but through justice it restores our relationships with others. And so Christ is holding this up, and what he's getting at is this idea that we as believers are supposed to be ones who are change agents in our culture and our society. And so what it's saying here is the word of the Lord is that we can be set free from sin, and we can also be set free from the brokenness of our culture. And so in 2 Thessalonians, when Paul is saying, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified, what he's getting at is the idea that through the gospel, the world can be transformed because of Jesus Christ. Now, that's exciting, is it not? I, I look at this and I think, wow, this is incredible. And I look at this as a historian as well. And I know that when Paul was saying, pray that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly, it spread rapidly. Within a generation, it had gone through all of the Roman Empire and it had begun to spread even as far as India. And then through the rest of history, we've seen that the word of the Lord has spread throughout all of the world. And now through things like technology, it's even being spread to places where we can't get people into anymore. And that's a pretty awesome thing. So Paul is declaring here a hope, an expectation that God will be faithful in doing this. And so the first thing there is our primary purpose, our primary goal. The second thing is our primary distractions, and he gets into two distractions that will creep in, beginning in verse 2. He says, now pray that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. So first off, we have perverse or crooked and evil men. And the second one is, but the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil ones. So the first one is that he and his friends will be rescued from evil men. The second is that the church will be protected from the evil one. Now, the word that's there, evil, is an interesting word in the Greek. It talks, it's the word poneros. And what it gets at is the idea of weariness and, and the idea of misery. So have you ever done something and you've done it and you've done it to the best of your ability, you get to the end of it and it's completely failed? Kind of like parenting, Right. Uh, that was a joke. It was my kids, my daughter's here, so I can make a parenting joke. Uh, 
But you get to the end of it, you're weary, you're worn out, and it didn't go the, like a joke. It didn't go the way that you wanted it to go and so forth. And what ends up happening is that you are miserable. And the idea behind evil here is that it is the misery that desires for everyone else to be miserable. And so you have evil men who are miserable and they want to make everybody else evil. You have Satan who is miserable because he knows that in the end, God wins. And he is saying here, we need to be protected from those who would wear us out with their misery. And what we're getting at here is, first off, there are evil men who will distract us and who will be cunning about it. They, they will sometimes come in. I, I, I was uh, at a church one time. I was there for a couple of weeks in a row. Uh, they were without a pastor. And the reason they were without a pastor is because an evil man had come into the church and had intentionally decided that he was going to sow division in the church. And actually what he was trying to do was get the property. He wanted to be named pastor and get his friends in. They were going to elect to dissolve the church, sell the property, and split the proceeds among themselves. This is in Mississippi. And that is evil. Try to take over a church so you can make money off of it. But there are people that have less subtle things that they do as well. And, and the reality is, is that there are evil people that will sometimes be attached to the church and, and who will be ne'er-do-wells and who will uh, sap us of our vitality, who will sap of our energy. And what he's saying there is that he says, pray that we will be rescued from these people. But we also have the protection against the evil one. And so I know that sometimes it's not popular to talk about Satan. It's not popular to talk about the, the powers of darkness and so forth. But I, I do want to touch on this for just a moment because uh, when I talk to my friends who are in missions, especially outside of the West, one of the things that they say is when you travel outside of the West and you minister outside of the West, you often will see manifestations of evil and of Satan that are much more uh, vivid than what you'll see in the West. And what one of my friends said one time is, in the West, we are too distracted to notice the reality of Satan. And he said, and that is a tool of Satan as well. And so I want to talk about some of these distractions. In fact, I, I think that we have temptations or distractions that are easy to creep in. They creep in at the church. They creep in for us as individuals as well. And, and I've listed out a few of these. The first one is the temptation of popularity and prestige. Do we fear men more than we fear God? Do we desire the applause of men more than we, uh, we desire the applause of God? If so, then we are getting into the temptation of popularity and prestige. Our culture right now is so driven by this idea that to be famous means to have value that a lot of times what happens is we will end up being quiet. We will end up saying, well, I, I don't want to do anything because it might mess up my position or something like that. And that is not the way that it is supposed to be. The second temptation that we have is the temptation of power in politics, and that is to substitute the little K king for the big K God king. And it's so easy for us to get into that temptation that we want to have power, we want to have influence, we want to substitute whatever, and we got to understand that our king is King Jesus, our king is not anybody else. And this is a big temptation that we have, especially in the West, because we see the power of politics, we see the influence of politics, and a lot of times we end up forgetting that really the influence we're supposed to have is the influence through the church to the state house and then into the culture. 
The third temptation or the, ter- the third one that we have here is the temptation of comfort. We love to be comfortable, right? I mean, the first thing I do when I get home is I get these clothes off and I go put on my comfortable clothes. We have a car. Uh, I had a friend who had a, like an old Buick one time, and he said it's like driving a sofa down the interstate. And uh, he said, I love this car. Uh, and what he was getting at was that it was very comfortable. And sometimes we have to get outside of our comfort zone to be able to do what the gospel commands us to do. Sometimes we have to talk to people we don't know, and that's awkward. Sometimes we have to give up and sacrifice things that we're saving for to give to gospel things because that's what God has asked us to do. And then the fourth thing is the temptation of history, and that is to rest on our laurels. The ancient Greeks believed that one of the greatest sins that you could commit was to live in the past and to say, well, back then I was great. Back then I was, you know, whatever. It's like uh, the 45-year-old man who still wears his high school letterman's jacket from the football team. He still acts as if he's like 20 or 18 or or whatever. And, And it's really easy for us to fall into that trap of saying, at one time we were great, and then you don't talk about anything else. I used to live near Nashville, and I was in business in Nashville a lot. And uh, one time I was in a room uh, for a meeting that was on top of the tallest building in Nashville. So we had an incredible view, 360-degree views as we walked around that floor and looked out the different windows. And uh, I I was looking out one window in particular and started to realize how many steeples I could see sticking up out of the trees. Uh, Nashville is a little like Charleston. It's a city of steeples. And as I was looking, I started to kind of gather my bearings and started realizing, oh, that's that church. I've seen that church. That's that church. I've seen that church. And some of these were incredible steeples, just like the steeples of Charleston that many of you would know. But as I got my bearings and I started realizing which churches belonged to which steeples, one of the things that I began to realize is that even though these were churches that had had power and influence, and it had politicians who were members of them because it was Nashville, the state capital. They had had uh, many times great preachers that were attached to those churches and everything. In many cases, those churches were churches now where the gospel was no longer preached. They had Sunday talks with happy things for people who were there out of rhythm or out of comfort or whatever. And sometimes we look at the past and we're tempted to go, look how great things were. And what happens when you focus on the past too much is you end up turning your back to the future. But look what Paul says here in this passage. In verse 4, he's got something that's completely different for us. He says this, we have confidence that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. And so Paul is looking at all these temptations, comfort, pride, history, whatever. And he's saying, if you're focusing on all those, you're looking in the wrong direction. Verse four shifts us instead to what the right direction is, what we are doing and what we will do. Because when we look at the past, what we need to be looking at is the reality that God has been faithful in the past and that gives us courage for the present and the future. My grandfather one time told me, his view of faith was a lot like this. He said, um, he said, Gene went, or Hoss, that was his name. Anybody remember Hoss Cartwright on Bonanza? They called me Hoss because I was a big, fat, 10-pound baby. And uh, so uh, granddad said this. He said, uh, one of the things you've got to understand as you get older, Gene, is he said, as you go through life, you can see where God was faithful here, and 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 God was faithful here. And he said, then when you get into a crisis in the moment, 
you know that in the past God has been faithful and that gives you the courage then to face the future with absolute confidence because if God has been faithful, God will be faithful. And so he said the constant temptation we have as Christians is to focus in the wrong direction instead of having confidence in the right direction. And this is one of the things that I will tell you as somebody, I've been a member of this church for about two years. I travel all over the state. The first year that I was at North Greenville, I think I counted, I was in 41 pulpits in 12 months, uh, sometimes on Sundays, sometimes other days of the weeks, and sometimes associational meetings and things like that. But let me tell you, this church is a church that has an incredible future. Do you all understand how the eyes of America are on the upstate of South Carolina? And they're fascinated by it because we have a strong, strong understanding of living out our faith, even as we have the economy doing well and things like that. This is an incredible crossroads. Y'all realize, I believe the third most commonly spoken language after English and Spanish in our area is Japanese and the fourth is German. Did y'all realize that? And it's because we are an incredible crossroads and melting pot that is here. And the economy is bringing people here like crazy. We don't have to go to the airport at 5.30 in the morning on Saturdays to reach the world from Taylor's, South Carolina. And so I believe very strongly that, look at verse 4, we can have confidence in the Lord that we are doing and will continue to do what has been commanded. And so then we get this primary direction. The primary direction is the love and steadfastness of Christ. And so notice this optimism that Paul has. We have confidence that this is going to happen. Look at the direction he has that you are doing and will continue to do. And then look at the last thing, and that is where this power comes from. The power comes from the love and steadfastness of Christ. And so this is the beauty of it all. Do we live in a discouraging era? We absolutely do. If you turn on the news in the morning, sometimes it is so discouraging. But you know what? Sometimes that's a distraction as well. And then it's a distraction away from understanding that the love of Christ is triumphant. The steadfastness of Christ is absolutely triumphant. And that as we look and we start to say, now, where are we? Are we focused back here and we don't need to be? Are we distracted going over here and we don't need to? Or are we coming alongside and following after Christ? Truett Cathy started Chick-fil-A. Anybody like Chick-fil-A? I like Chick-fil-A eat it way too much. We have one on campus that's like terrible. I had a young man who told me he ate 24 sandwiches the first four days it was open. Was, and he weighed about 110 pounds. I don't, I don't know how he did that. Um, but sure, Kathy had an interesting guy who worked for him, a guy named Jimmy Collins. And Jimmy Collins was Mr. Kathy's number two uh, officer. And somebody asked him, why did you go out on a limb and follow Truett when he started this company? And he said, because I knew he was a man who was following after God. And if I followed after a man who followed after God, and if all of our workers followed after people who followed after people who followed after God, then we would be all right. And so I think about that. If we are praying that God will bring us a pastor, who is seeking after Christ, and then we as a church are aligned in seeking after Christ, then guess what we'll find? That the love and the steadfastness of Christ will empower everything that we do. And so where are we? And I, I can't answer it for you as an individual. Uh, I'm only a part of the church. I can't answer it for all of us as a church, but I can say this. This is a great season for us to reflect on, now what are we doing? 
Are we on mission? Are we not? Are these places we need to fix? Are these places that we're strong and we need to emphasize those? Or, and I'm not saying this, but I want for us to consider this, are we at risk of losing our mission? Because you can look around and see places that have lost their mission. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to go to Harvard for a summer program, and uh, we, we were riding a bus one day, and if you've ever been to Harvard, as a, as a higher ed guy, Harvard's like, you know, heaven. Uh, you know, it was so exciting to go there and to be able to see things, and there's a dorm there that was the freshman dorm for 12 U.S. presidents. And it's, it's just a crazy thing. But when you go into old Harvard Yard, one of the things that's shocking is that all of the gates that go into Harvard Yard have scripture passages over top of them. And when you go into the psychology building, over top of the psychology building, it says, what is man that thou art mindful of him? And uh, we're riding the bus one day, and the motto for Harvard is uh, Veritas, Veritas. And uh, we're riding the bus one day, and one of the people sitting next to me said, does anybody know what Veritas means? And uh, I, I kind of perked up at that because I knew what it means. And uh, uh, I thought, well, this is going to be an interesting conversation. So the, the guy said, does anybody know what Veritas means? And somebody said, I think it's Latin for Harvard. And I said, no, it's not Latin for Harvard. Um, and, and so somebody else said, well, I think it's this. And somebody else said, I think it's this. And finally, I just couldn't stand it anymore. So I, I had to be the smart aleck, right? And so I, I, I said, uh, veritas means truth. It's the Latin word for truth. And Harvard's motto is truth because most higher ed institutions will say education is the search for truth. And so they said, oh, that's interesting. I said, well, actually, it's short. The actual motto of Harvard, and if you've never heard this, this might be a surprise to you. I said, the actual motto for Harvard is Veritas Christo et Ecclesiae, truth for Christ and the church. Because Harvard was started as a college that would prepare pastors and Christian business people to serve the culture. And, and the guy that asked the question said, truth for Christ and the church? Wow, have they changed. God forbid that anyone a hundred years from now look at this church and say, they once were a missions church? Boy, have they changed. God forbid that anyone ever look at this church and say, that was a church that believed in evangelism and discipleship? Boy, have they changed. And I can take you to places in Nashville with very large steeples on them that no longer do evangelism, no longer do missions, no longer do discipleship, but they have beautiful buildings. And God forbid that anyone say that about any of us as individual believers. That at one day, they were doing things at the church. They were involved. They were passionate. They were all, and now they're not really involved at all. Because here's the reality. The reality is you don't go from point A to point Z in one leap. It's one decision at a time. It's one Sunday at a time. It's one missed Bible reading at a time. It's one frustration at a time. It's one evil influence at a time. It's a temptation from the evil one at a time. And the next thing we know, we wake up and say, now, what are we doing? Let's pray. God, we are grateful for the words of Paul here that challenge us and encourage us, God, because they are future-oriented. He looks at them and says, I know you will be faithful in these things. And God, 
We want to be a faithful church. We pray right now that you will be preparing a faithful leader for us that will follow after you and that we can follow after and that as individuals we can be a part of a fellowship that is following after you. And God, even right now in this moment, I pray that if there are those right now who are listening and thinking, well, I'm not sure if I'm following, God, that they will repent and they will seek after relationship with you. God, I pray right now that if there's anybody here who's never taken that first step of alignment with you, that first act of repentance, that that man or that woman, that boy or that girl will come forward right now and will take that step. God, we want to be your place. We want to be your church. We want to be your people. God, we pray all these things this morning in Christ's name. Amen.